morning, church family. Um, please reach over to your neighbor and just say good morning. Tell them, thank you for being faithful, for swimming to church. I want to share with you that yesterday and the day before, the deacons of our church family met at Folly Beach Baptist um, Beach House uh, on Folly Beach this weekend, and we had a wonderful retreat. Uh, the deacons of this church are so important to show servant leadership uh, to our congregation. They are there to do the work uh, that God has called them to do. Uh, you may or may not know this, but there truly are only two offices in the church biblically, and they are pastor and deacon. And so our deacons are important. Yesterday we spent time um, praying, uh, studying God's word, uh, taking the Lord's Supper, uh, lifting one another up, fellowshipping, challenging one another. We learned six ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and uh, people that we know in our lives, our family. Uh, today is uh, Sanctity of Human Life Day. The Word of God, as uh, April so beautifully read Psalm 139, the truth of God's Word says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Just look at the human body. It is truly a marvel. If you've ever been a, uh, a person who's been able to witness the birth of a baby, it is truly a miraculous event, a spiritual event. And so we hold up human life because we know that the good Lord is the giver of life. He is the creator of life. And so I want to welcome our friends at Harmony uh, we have a deacon serving over there. In fact, it's wonderful to be able to uh, worship the Lord in many places. If you're listening via live stream, we welcome you to break open the bread of life, which we call the Holy Bible. Uh, I want to just honor Sarah McAvoy for her many, many, many uh, weekends when she was at Harmony, just leading that group every single Sunday faithfully for the last year. And now the deacons are helping and they're stepping in to be there at Harmony to uh, bring this live stream to them. So I want to thank Sarah. Uh, this week, we answer the question, isn't the Bible out of date? Last week, we answered the question, uh, aren't there many ways to heaven? And we, we learned the uniqueness of Christianity as compared to other world religions. We learned the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. The uniqueness of Christianity and the God of Christianity is that he is a personal God. He is a knowable God. He is triune. He is one in essence, but three in person in the form of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we notice that Christianity's unique in the sense that it offers forgiveness, something that we all seek in our lives to be forgiven and then to seek to forgive. But we found the uniqueness of Jesus Christ last week to be that he is fully human, fully human, and yet fully God, that he claimed to be God, that he accepted worship, that he forgave sins, and that he displayed in power the very nature and character and divine privilege of God in his earthly ministry. 
And so today we look at the Bible, the Word of God, which really does detail not only the creation of the world in Genesis, but the giving of the law that every single uh, Western government hangs its hat on, the Ten Commandments. And then the prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah, who would take away the sin of the world. And of course, then we see in the Gospels the life of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, brought such a humble and yet authoritative voice to his generation that now 2,000 years later is still ringing true in our world. We come together and we gather around the Word of God because it is truth. We want to balance grace and truth as we engage the world around us. Many people believe that the Bible's out of date. It's irrelevant. We have evolved. This is just old, ancient words. But as we sung earlier, these ancient words are true. So if you have your Bible with you, with you this morning, I want us to open up to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Once again, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 10. It's page uh, 1,156 in your pew Bible if you uh, don't have your own personal Bible with you. And if you'll stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, thank you that this is your word. It boldly declares that it, its source is you and you alone. And since you are perfect, since you are holy, since you cannot lie, Lord, we can trust, we can rely upon, we can hold up your word for both faith and practice, even in today's world, maybe especially in today's world. We pray that you will illumine our hearts to these truths today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 
You know, as we look at this particular passage, this, of course, was a letter, the, the last letter, many scholars believe, that the Apostle Paul wrote. And that last letter is here, 2 Timothy. And in the second to the last chapter of this letter, Paul addresses his faithful protege, Timothy, with these tender words of remembrance of his journey of faith. Paul the Apostle, it is no secret, was tortured, was persecuted, was beaten with rods, was stoned, was imprisoned. He himself endured so much suffering and pain as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus would tell his own apostles on the night before he was betrayed and then scourged and beaten and whipped and then crucified on a Roman cross. He himself would tell his apostles, in this world, you will have trouble. Praise God he did not end there. He then said, but take heart. Be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. And so it is in that faith that we come to the scriptures, and we know that there are three truths of every Bible-believing Christian. And that is this, number one, as a Christian whose authority is the Bible, you will be persecuted. That's what we find here in this passage. Paul tells Timothy flat out in verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Perhaps that is no more true in this generation or just as true in this generation as it was in the days of Paul. You know, we live in America, America that was founded on Christian principles. It was a Judeo-Christian ethic that really pervaded every aspect of our American life for the first 200 plus years. But in these recent years, we have moved beyond the world of a Christian worldview here in America. And we have moved beyond Christianity as we now live in a post-Christian world. Christianity is actually uh, not growing in America, and the reason is is because there is a, 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 a smattering of all kinds of other cultural items that come to the fore and have challenged the very basis, the very foundations of the Christian faith. If you look at Genesis 1 through 11, it, re- it reads like an amazing novel of how we all came to be, how the world came into being. And how God created the world and how he created every living creature in his own image and how he desired for them to worship him in spirit and in truth and yet man fell. And so God's entire message of the Bible is one of redemption. Buying back that which is separated from him, that which has erred, followed a wrong path. The Bible is God's love letter to mankind. It's his love letter. He wants us to come into a right relationship with him. But if you choose to follow Christ, you will be persecuted. We live in a culture, I mean, since COVID, this has become rampant. But we live in a woke 
environment. Now the word woke literally means being aware of or well-informed in either a political or cultural sense of the social injustices of our world, either present or past. It describes the issues that really are faced by the marginalized communities in our world. And so to be woke is to wake up to these social injustices. We have movements, activations, if you will, of feminism, abortion rights, the Me Too movement, issues like Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, the LGBTQ community, transgenderism, gender identity, uh, you know, it's transgenderism, cultural appropriation, my truth, this idea that I'm living my truth and therefore you cannot tell me how to live. And the, the institution of marriage has even been redefined. So how is the Christian community supposed to respond to this wokeness that we are experiencing in our country. You know, many churches choose not to address it, but I feel like, why not? God's word is sufficient to address it. As I, if I have a biblical worldview, I would understand that all human beings are created in the image of God. Even those that we disagree with. Even those that are not lovable even those that are different from us. The church needs to understand that. When we go out and we look at the world, we need to know this one fact that that person, no matter how we feel about them, they are created in the image of the God we worship. Amen. And because we worship him, we obey him. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule. The golden rule is, is that Jesus said, you are to love that person, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they do, you are to love them with an unconditional love that the Bible calls agape love. You and I don't have the capacity to love people like that, but because we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can love people as Jesus loved them. The second thing we'll learn in the Bible is that there are two genders. God created them male and female. We need to stand on that truth. And guess what? Guess what? There is one race according to the word of God. We are one race, the human race. Every single one of us it's just a different shade of brown. Some people would say, well, Randy, you're pretty white. And I am. You know, I have pale skin. My uh, dermatologist keeps me on the straight and narrow. But I'm not white like this sheet of paper, am I? Don't argue with me. I have a little bit of brown in me. My wife has a little more brown. She's got some Sicilian in her background, you know? And some of us are a little bit browner than that, and there are some people that are, that are very brown. But here's the key. All of us, if you believe the Bible, 
all of us have descended from Adam and Eve. Now, none of us in this room knows exactly what Adam and Eve looked like. I can't wait to meet them. When I get to heaven, I'm going to look for Adam. I'm going to look for two things. What color was he really? And then number two, did he have a belly button? <laughs> that might be an awkward exchange. But the Bible tells us that we all come from Adam and Eve. We are all God's creatures. God created every one of us with an image. Now, let's be clear. There are people groups throughout the history of humankind who have oppressed, persecuted, mercilessly enslaved, and murdered other people groups. And that is wrong, and that is absolutely guilty according to the word of God. So let's not miss that. We humans have done awful things to our fellow man. Amen. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to understand it. And we need to live as Jesus lived. God's word says that there is no favoritism in God. He doesn't favor anyone. He loves all. And so if we follow God and we follow his son, Jesus Christ, we must love all. Let's not miss this. Christians have suffered persecution mercilessly since Jesus' day. Hundreds of millions of Christians have died martyr deaths because of their faith. Why would they? Because they know whom they have believed and are convinced that he is able to keep them against that day. There is one race. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, as I said, the golden rule. We are also commanded to care for the downpressed, the hard-pressed, the widow, the orphan, the slave, the outcast, people who are marginalized in our society. Our job, our command from our Lord Jesus Christ is to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. I have seen that firsthand as Susan and I have a son with severe special needs. This family of faith has demonstrated the love of Christ for our family in helping us to care for Seth. Number six, we are, not, we are not to stereotype all people. Just because somebody disagrees with you, don't label them. It's not fair. It's not right. Love them. You may disagree, and it's okay to disagree, but that love doesn't have to go away when you disagree. Number seven, we are to respect government authorities, Romans 13. That is important because that's how we keep a civil society. Christians should be, as Paul would say, we should be a light. We should show how we can be submissive and respectful of government authorities. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything, but it does mean that we have to be respectful of civil authority. And then lastly, and this is perhaps most important, Paul in his tender letter to the Colossian church talks about how we, how we, the Christian community, our 
Our conversation with people who do not agree with us needs to be seasoned with salt. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If, a salt, lo if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. We talked about this at the deacon meeting yesterday. We are salt of the earth. What does salt do? First of all, it preserves. You want to preserve those relationships with people who you may not agree with. And secondly, you want to season. You want to give a, a wonderful taste to that person by serving them, by loving them, by showing them that Jesus is real. When we do all these things, then the persecution that comes, we will be able to stand up under it because we are acknowledging that God's word is true. Paul here says it very powerfully. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But you understand that that persecution is for a time. It's for a piece of time. The most important thing for you and I is to recognize that this life is not the end for the Christian. As we learned last week, we will be ushered into our heavenly kingdom where we will live forever. Eternal life is available. Why would you go to eternal life and deny people that you love the opportunity to come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ? You kids at school, be bold, share your faith. You people who live in a neighborhood, you've been seeing the same neighbor go in and out of their garage every single day. Walk across the road and say, Jesus loves you. How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? To think that people don't have problems is foolishness. Everybody has difficulties in their lives. When you go to a restaurant and the server who's working their tail off, why not say, you know, we're getting ready to pray over our meal. How can we pray for you? We know that that can be an encouragement to people. That's how Paul led his life. That's how Jesus taught us to live our life. But then there's a second truth. As a Christian whose authority is the Bible, stand firm in your salvation. Look at what it says there in verses uh, 14 and 15. But as for you, Timothy, he's saying, continue in what you have learned. Now, what has he learned? He's learned the word of God. He's learned the Old Testament, which is what they had at the time. They might have had some uh, smattering of the Gospels. They might have had some of Paul's letters. As we'll learn, if we turn over to 2 Peter, Peter actually uh, uh, addresses Paul's letters as sometimes hard to understand. It's interesting. But he says, continue in what you have learned and become convinced. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that this word is real? You know, when I was on a merchant ship in 1985, out in the Mediterranean on my way to Odessa, Russia, 19 people on the ship, one of which who told me, listen, if I get out of line, nobody's going to look for a U.S. Merchant Marine Academy cadet. So they can take me and toss me overboard. Nobody will look for me. I took this Bible and I read it. And I reread it. And I reread it. And I reread it. And it changed me. Little by little. Precept upon precept. It is 
so convincing to me that this is in fact the very words of God. You could strap me to a stake and set the flame. I will never renounce Jesus Christ and his word. Never. It's so convincing. The bottom line is you, you can't be convinced unless you read it, unless you study it, unless you let it change you. So I'm going to give us 10 reasons why the Bible can be trusted, why it's real, why it's reliable, and why it is relevant, perhaps more relevant today than ever. Number one, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Over and over and over again, the prophet said, the word of the Lord came to me. I am just relaying what God has said. Jesus said, this is the word. I am the word, the word of life. The authors claim to speak God's word. And of course, we just read that all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. Number two, the Bible is consistent. Do you realize that the Bible has 66 books? There are 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Did you know that? And those 66 books were written over the span of 50. 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. Some were priests, some were shepherds, some were kings, some were tax collectors, some were fishermen, some of them died for the faith. You see, you take those 40 authors across the geography of the known Roman Empire of that day, writing in three languages, over a 1,500-year span of time, 66 different books, and now we have the canon of Scripture in front of us, and for the last two thousand years. Skeptics, scholars, historians, archaeologists, scientists have tried to poke holes in this Bible and they have not been able to do it. Amen. It's amazing to me. You take a book, there's never been a book more scrutinized, more inspected, more examined than the Holy Scriptures and yet it stands firm, consistent from cover to cover. It tells one complete plan of God. From paradise lost to paradise gained. From creation to consummation. From the beginning to the end. From the alpha to the, the omega. God is the author of this word. It is the basic book of redemption. Don't you want to share it? The Bible is consistent. The Bible has more manuscript evidence than any other book in history. It's authentic. There are 24,000 manuscript copies or portions of the New Testament that you can test against. What we have here is 99.9% .9 accurate to what the earliest known manuscript copies are. If you think about it, in 1948, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found a scroll that was 100% Isaiah. All 66 books of Isaiah, together. And that, that finding in the Dead Sea, those scrolls in the Qumran caves, 
predated the latest manuscripts that they had almost 900 years. And they compared what they found in the Qumran caves to what they had in 1948, Isaiah, all 66 books, and they found it to be over 99% accurate. It astounds us to know how God has preserved his word. So if the New Testament has 24,000 copies, 24,000 copies of the New Testament, imagine, what's the next one? How many of you kids have to read Iliad, the Iliad in high school? You still have to read that or is that no good anymore? I'm not saying it, well, I should say, have you read it? There's a good chance you haven't. Were you assigned it? <laughs> you know, and I, I'm reaching out and I'm thinking, okay, they may not have read it, but do you realize that they only have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad? Now, how many of you have ever sat there and said, well, I don't really think Homer wrote that? Well, I don't really think this chapter is relevant to me today. No. 643 copies versus the New Testament's 24,000. Number four, the Bible's prophecies have come true. Every prophecy recorded in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ has all come true. Think about it. It's, it's, a, it's astounding. Uh, scholars tell us that Jesus' first coming, there are at least 48 prophecies specific to Jesus' first coming. A mathematician actually took that task on and said, I'm only going to look at eight of those 48 prophecies. And what he did was he made a calculation of the odds of one person fulfilling those eight prophecies. And this is the calculation that he came out with. You take the state of Texas. How many have ever lived in Texas or been to Texas or driven through Texas? It's a huge state, is it not? Now, if you and I were to take a silver dollar, a silver dollar, put it on the ground at the corner of Texas, and then we were to put another silver dollar touching that first silver dollar, and another one, and another one, and another one, we could fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, butted up against each other. Then, as if that weren't enough, we would take our next chunk of silver dollars, and we would stack up one by one, two feet in the air, and cover the state of Texas. Now, now you have Texas completely full of silver dollars. By the way, how many silver dollars does it take to make two feet? 266 silver dollars. That's one stack. About an inch square. But you're going to take stacks that will cover the entire state of Texas. Now, you take a person and you say, now go into that stack and you put an X on one silver dollar. And then you take a person and you blindfold them and you say, now go wade through these silver dollars and find the one marked X. This is what the mathematician just described. And what he found is that the odds of a person fulfilling just eight of the 48 prophecies of Jesus' first coming 
are 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Unbelievable. The Bible tells us that those eight prophecies and 40 more were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Only God can do that kind of math. Amen? Number five, the Bible is historically accurate and confirmed by archaeology. I'm amazed at how much we learn. And when we learn, we then go back to what the Bible teaches and we say, well, it's always been there. History has been authenticated over and over and over again through the pages of Scripture. Archaeology, findings of relics, and things that were buried for centuries. We now find them, and all they do is authenticate or now prove that, in fact, what the Bible said was true. Number six, the Bible is brutally honest about its characters. I mean, let's face it. If you're going to write a book that's going to try to paint a good picture of Christianity and people following Jesus, you wouldn't include guys like Jacob and David and Moses and Peter. You wouldn't. Jacob was two-faced and a liar. Moses killed a man. David committed adultery and then murdered the man. And then Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. You wouldn't include those characters in your story if you wanted to paint the Bible as authentic. And yet, it's that that causes it to be authentic. That these characters are real. They're just like us. We're, we, we would think they would exclude these characters from the story, or at least clean up their story. But the fact is, is that they didn't. And so therefore, you and I can relate. You and I can relate to these people. They're not heroes. They are real people just like you and I that God used. Second Peter tells us that the prophets didn't come up with their own prophecies from their own minds, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the very words of God. Number seven, the Bible and external sources record the miraculous change in the disciples. If you know anything about the Gospels, what you're going to learn is this, is that Jesus was abandoned. The disciples left him. They fled. As I just said, Peter denied him. They were hiding in a room. They didn't want to be seen by the religious leaders or the Roman guard. And what happened? Forty days later, they see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them about the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, they lay down their life for their Savior. They are willing to die. They're willing to die. In Matthew 28, we learn that the, the idea was that the religious leaders gave the Roman soldiers this task. Just, just report that the disciples came and stole his body while we slept. Well, if you're sleeping, how do you know what happened? And how can you, how can you even fathom any one of those disciples dying for the faith if they were, in fact, part of the deceptive act of stealing his body. No, it doesn't make sense. Number eight, the Bible adequately answers all of life's critical questions. Where did the universe come from? What is humanity's relationship with God? What is sin? How can we be saved? What is the solution for our sin problem? And where are we going when we die? 
We talked about that last week. Number nine, the Bible accurately describes the heavens, the earth, and the human body way before science was able to authenticate it. You know, up until uh, 1500 AD, we believed the earth was flat. And yet the Bible records over and over and over again indications that the earth is spherical. Number 10, the Bible and its message of hope have changed people throughout history. There are countless testimonies of people who have endured trials, tribulations, temptations. Every apostle was martyred for the faith, and millions since have given their lives for the cause of Christ. Why on earth would people do that if they didn't believe in the veracity and the reliability of God's word? So you will be persecuted, but you are to stand firm in your salvation. But then lastly, as a Christian whose authority is the Bible, let it teach you, let it rebuke you, let it correct you, and let it train you in righteousness. Righteousness is right standing before God. You want to be right with God. You know, you may have friends or family or people that you know who may challenge the veracity of the Bible. They may say, well... You know, the Bible has errors in it. How many of you ever heard that? The Bible is full of errors. Gently look at them and say, can you please show me where there's an error in the Bible? You realize that most people that you talk to haven't done the research themselves. They're just parroting what somebody else has told them. They're just saying what they've heard. And so if you gently and lovingly say, can you just please show me where that contradiction is? then I'll help you if I can. Number two, the Bible has laws that are not relevant anymore. You mean I can't eat pork? You mean I can't wear this nice jacket that has two different kinds of material in it? Of course, they're pulling this from Leviticus. You have to understand how the Bible was written. There are three kinds or categories of law. There's the moral law that is transcendent. And we see this in the Ten Commandments and other commandments in which... The, the truth of those commands is applicable across all ethnicities, all nations, all peoples. But for the Israelite people that God had called out from the world, there were ceremonial laws and then civil laws for their nation. And the point of Leviticus is this. If you read the Bible, you'll understand this. It's, it's again, people who say, well, they, you know, why do we have this or that? but they don't go and study it themselves. If you did, you would find that God's purpose in creating all these rules and regulations for the Israelite people was to teach them holiness, to show them that they can't possibly keep his command to the letter, and ultimately to point to the one who kept every single law himself. Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. I've come to do what you can't do. The principles of Leviticus are applicable to us today. The idea behind it is that the moral law is written on our hearts and we are to obey it. You know, there's another one. The Bible endorses slavery. No, it's, no it doesn't. No, it doesn't. 
but it doesn't equivocate or back off or shrink back from the fact that it existed in Paul's and Jesus' day. Slavery is evil. And the Bible simply refers to slavery and then even gives encouragement and instruction on those who are enslaved to live for Christ because their life is not this life but the next. Another one, the Bible subjugates women. You ever heard that one? <laughs> I don't think anybody could ever argue with how much Jesus elevated the status and the respect of women. He was countercultural himself. Jesus had a following of women who loved him, supported him, and he, them, the adulterous woman caught in the act of adultery. He gave her loving tenderness and care, and in fact, stood down her accusers and then told her to go and sin no more. The Syrophoenician woman who was very vile and very sinful, Jesus forgave her of her sins. How about the Samaritan woman at the well? <laughs> Jesus engaged her, something no self-respecting Jew would ever do, but he engaged with her and even knew about her sinful lifestyle. Did he judge her? No. He shared with her the living water that springs up to eternal life. No, it's, it's not a subjugation of women at all. The Bible is very clear. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no greater inclusive faith than the Christian Jesus will accept everyone who come to him in repentance. Amen. In conclusion, what is our authority for life? You know, you have a decision to make this morning. And most of us have made it, and I understand that, that we're all here in church. But is this going to be your operating manual. You know, B-I-B-L-E, it's all worn, but B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. How do you know the operator's manual? You kids, you have textbooks, you have all kinds of social media that you got to keep up with, I get it. But don't let it supplant reading the eternal words of the eternal creator, sustainer, preserver, and redeemer of your life. God wants you to know him. And how do you know him? Except that you read his love letter to you. If you read God's love letter, he will, in fact, fill you with hope and joy for this life and the next. Psalm 118.8 happens to be the central verse in the entire 66 books of the Bible. It's the center verse. And it says this. It is better to take refuge in God than to trust in man.
Do you trust God? Do you take your refuge in God? I sure do. I trust him. Throughout my life, Jesus has never let me down. He'll never let you down. Will Christians let you down? Yeah. We're human. But Jesus will never let you down. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you know my heart about this passage and this topic because the Bible has been so such a friend to me. I find comfort in the Psalms. I find confidence in the words of Christ. I find hope in the pages of Revelation. Lord, I pray that we as a church family will be the kind of church that people can come in and worship and know that they are going to get the very words of God and nothing less. Father, thank you for your word, your spoken word, your written word, and yes, indeed, the living word, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen and amen.